Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. everyone. I'm joined today by the beautiful Lisa of Dr. Lisa Researcher on Instagram and also the owner of Play Nourish Thrive. Lisa's here to talk to us today about two of her journeys with motherhood, the first one with her toddler and the second with her new baby. And they're very, very different experiences. And I think this will be a very insightful episode. So I'm going to leave it over to Lisa if you want to introduce yourself and say hi. Hi. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm so excited to listen to all the episodes that you've been recording. They sound amazing. Um, And I feel very privileged that I get to be one of those episodes. Yeah, it's so good to chat with you about this. Um, It's not often you get the opportunity and space to really think about your journey and talk about your journey and unpack it. Because yeah, like you said, I had two very different experiences becoming a mother, two matrescence journeys. And a lot of that was sort of circumstance and luck, I think as well but um I'm sh- hopefully there's something in there as well um yeah I think there's we- definitely hard work in there too we have to oh, acknowledge yeah. that because <laughs> in all fairness there was a lot of planning during your second pregnancy in preparation after having gone through what you went through with your first correct yeah so I did postpartum planning with Catherine from Mother Up who's another guest that you've had on the podcast and she is awesome and so we became friends over Instagram and At some point, I messaged her and said, oh, would you take me on as a client? Um, This is when I was pregnant with my second. And yeah, she jumped at that. And so she helped me figure out resources and things I could do that would help my second journey be a lot more smoother and a lot more supported as well. Because my first journey, I thought that I would be fine and that I didn't need a lot of help. But Having a new baby is more than a two-person job. It's like a 15-person job. Um, And we didn't have any sort of support systems in place to help us go through that. And so the second time around, I was very keen on trying to harness whatever support I could possibly have, because why not? (laughs) I'm not proud anymore about these types of things. In my first one, um, I was, I, I wouldn't say stubborn, but very proud in that I think highly of my ability to get shit done but when I became a mother I realized that nothing that I've ever done at work or study or professionally or whatever really set me up well (laughs) if anything it it set me up the other way because I I was somebody who had to be productive and um, had to tick boxes and um, get degrees and that kind of stuff but when you're a mother nobody comes to your house and gives you an award for being the best mother in the world um and you don't really have that feedback that you do at work um and that was such a challenging transition for me so second time round i'm at the point where you know i have to be my own cheerleader give my myself my own awards <laughs> for what i'm doing <laughs> cuz there's definitely no one's going to knock on your door and go oh 
well done you, you did this or you did that and, you know, that's what you're supposed to do and blah, 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 blah. Um, now it's all about what I feel is right and what works for me and my baby. Um, and that's different between my two babies as well. So, um, so I have two children who are completely different kids. Um, we're talking different ends of the spectrum of personality and temperament. And that's quite validating even in itself because I realised that my only job is to really love them and to look after myself and everything else will work out because you just have so little control over who these little humans are. Yeah. With your pregnancy with your first, you thought you might have had depression during your first trimester, but that it passed and you had a relatively good pregnancy, relatively good birth. I want to just touch on that start of the pregnancy, if you're happy to go there. Of course, absolutely. Yeah, so in my first trimester, I started to get a little bit anxious and a little bit low. And I even, even in one of the first um, appointments with my doctor, I mentioned it and she actually said that Gidget is a good resource. And I thought, okay, and I put that in the back of my mind. And I have a lot of sort of toxic positivity, so... I, I tend to, at least in the past, I used to bury things down and and think, you know, just look on the bright side, everything will be fine. And I sort of did that in that first trimester. I was like, you know what, once the baby's here, everything will be good. You know, once you get over this first hump of first trimester, everything will be good. And in some respects it was. Um, by the time I was in second trimester, I was feeling really good and even mentally Um and I thought, you know, that's that was nothing, nothing, nothing to worry about. But I even, I now that I'm thinking about it, I was even speaking to the, some friends, and I was like, oh, maybe I should go and talk to somebody about it. And then I was like, oh no, I can't be bothered. I'm too busy with work and all that important work stuff that I'm doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think we're so quick to dismiss ourselves. A hundred percent. Like if I had a girlfriend come to me and say the same thing, I would have been like pushing her into the door of a psych's office going, yes, get support, get support. Um, But for me, even though I've got a psych degree too, (laughs) I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. So many women I know, like doctors, social workers, psychologists, are ones that I've met on this journey. And this is the thing, it does not discriminate. It does not matter how much you know, how much you help other people with the exact same thing. It does not discriminate. Exactly, exactly. It's so it's so funny um, in the worst kind of yeah. way. <laughs> in the most ironic <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I actually had, um, and I don't talk about this very often, I actually had gestational diabetes with my first, my now toddler, um, and I was quite shocked by that diagnosis and shocked in that every woman sort of goes through a grieving period, I think. And I went to the literature because I'm a researcher and was looking up qualitative studies on women's experiences of being diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And um, that was sort of the first time I read a journal article and felt that I wasn't the only one. And that sort of, and we'll talk a little bit more about what I do on Instagram, but that was sort of the beginnings of, of what I do now. Yeah. Um, and it's about your baby as well. Um so you, if you bring up any blog post or 
article on gestational diabetes, the first things that it will say is your baby is now at high risk of type two diabetes. And you're like, yay, have I like, that's great. I've, I've done this to my baby. Like you start blaming yourself and thinking that you're the yeah. reason. So that definitely um, wasn't a great moment of my pregnancy. Uh, when I was a lot younger, I think a lot of women go through this. I, I was very controlled of my diet when I was I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I definitely had a lot of the behaviors of somebody with an eating disorder, exercising for three hours a day and counting every single calorie. And I thought, oh, shit, that's going to happen again now, isn't it? I'm going to sort of go back to those behaviors. And it it was actually okay because this was about my baby and about me and not about the way I looked. So that that was good from that perspective. So that sort of changed just uh, my focus of my pregnancy for those last few weeks. And so with work, I I put in for maternity leave from my due date with my my toddler. Um, And so that's the type of person I was. I wasn't going to go off a week early or anything. Don't be ridiculous. Uh, (laughs) But I pushed it to like 36 weeks. I cannot imagine. I'm assuming 39 weeks, 40 weeks. Well, that's the thing. My my daughter came early. Um, (laughs) So she had her own plans, which I'm very thankful for. Mm. Um, But uh, it's funny because with my second baby, I went on maternity leave at 29 weeks pregnant. So I approached pregnancy and postpartum completely differently the second time. Um, and I do not regret that for an absolute second. Um, so I woke up on a Thursday morning. I was 37 and six weeks pregnant and my waters broke when I got out of bed. And then by, and that was 8am and by 3.30 in the afternoon, she was born. So that's the most convenient my daughter's ever been in her life. (laughs) And it was a really positive birth. Um, but she came out small for gestational age. So the fear with gestational diabetes is you're going to have a big baby. So I was very, very controlled with my eating. And a lot of it's out of your control as well. So you could be the most controlled person and still need to be on insulin and things like that. But we were very um, focused on making sure my carbs were at a good level. And then she came out small and my husband blamed himself for that as well. He thought that you know, he should have been feeding me more and all this kind of stuff and maybe she would have been bigger. So there was a lot of grief that went around with that as well. Um, so, yeah, when she came out, the midwife looked at her placenta and was like, oh, that's small. Oh, small placenta, small baby. That's interesting. And it's not very reassuring to hear after you've just given birth. Exactly, exactly. So I had this positive birth. It was beautiful. Yeah, and then all of a sudden people started to get really worried about my daughter. So she was 2.45 kilos, so she was just at the cutoff. So had she put on 50 more grams, she wouldn't have been considered small for gestational age, but that was enough for all every medical professional and every nurse and every person that we saw in the next couple of days to make comments about the fact that she's small and why she's small and did you know that? Yeah, the first night with her, so she was born at 3.30, we went up to Matt Ward from there. My husband had to go home at 8 p.m. where I gave birth in a, um, in a public hospital. Um, so by the next morning, she was, she was in NICU. So um, her jaundice levels were, were high, 
I think that's how you say it. Um, so she had pathological jaundice, which is jaundice that you have in the first 24 hours. So every baby is has jaundice to some extent, but hers yeah. was um, not a normal range. So she was down in NICU within 12 hours of birth. Um, I've got a photo of her in the little aquarium looking thing. And I, and at the time I was like, you know, I, I was so um, traumatized and upset, but I thought I'm going to take this photo because I know that one day I will be happy that I did. And I am very happy. I look at back at that photo all the time and she's just, yeah, she's under the blue light. She had the blue lights underneath her and the blue lights above her. And she's this tiny, tiny little baby. Um, and I had been um, antenatally expressing because of the gestational diabetes. That's a recommendation. Um, so that was one thing I didn't have to learn at 3 a.m. in the morning, which I'm really pr- happy about, not proud, but happy about that I could I could do that without getting a nurse having to come in and show me what to do. See, this is my behaviours. I need to do things myself. I can't ask for help. Yeah. Um, and so I was, and thank God her birth was pretty straightforward. So I was like going from Matt Ward down to NICU to Matt Ward to NICU every few hours, um, giving her my um, colostrum. And I became, and I think I became very obsessed with breastfeeding her. It was like my form of connection to her. Um, and then when she was in the NICU for six hours, her jaundice levels came down to a point where I could breastfeed her directly myself. And so I absolutely jumped at the chance. Now it hurt to breastfeed my daughter for the first eight weeks of her life, but I was, that was my one thing that I could do for her when um, I felt like I was failing in so many different ways. Um, That makes me, that always makes me cry when I talk about this time. Take a breath. (laughs) We do feel like that, don't we? Like when, Mm. I mean, especially, you know, you're told or your bub's sick or small you know you then want to give them something you want to be able to do something and as a mum that's something we can do that no one else can exactly exactly it sort of set me apart in my mind at that point in time and so so her jaundice levels then came down and six hours late after that she was back up in that ward with me so she was only in NICU for 12 hours and I feel like she was in NICU for weeks I my heart goes out to families who have their babies in there for weeks or months because even just 12 hours was enough. It was, yeah, it just felt like forever and it sort of changed the um, trajectory of my motherhood journey as well, just that those 12 hours. Anyway, and that night she was back with me and I was stoked, I was so happy. She was well enough. She was in the room with me. And this is where t- two and a bit years later I've become much better with having conflicting feelings at the time, I was like, you know, I should be really happy that she's here. Um, those shoulds come up. Um, oh, yeah. Should is a terrible word. Oh, it's horrendous. <laughs> yeah. But now I know that it's okay that I had very conflicting feelings. I was happy that she was well. But that night was one of the most traumatic nights of my life um, because she was so tiny and every every medical professional we come into contact with had primed me for the fact that she was small and not very well. So me sitting in the mat ward, and again, my husband wasn't wasn't there because he had to go home because it was COVID as well. This was July 2020, so this was peak COVID, sort of we're all afraid of it. 
time. Um, yeah, so I'm sitting in the in the hospital bed trying desperately to hold my baby up and trying desperately to stay awake so I wouldn't drop her um, after the night before being awake every couple of hours running down colostrum to her and the day before that I gave birth. Um, but I was also in a point where I couldn't ask for help. There's no way. I had to do this on my own. So even when I asked, when I called the nurses so I could go to the toilet, because my, my daughter just wouldn't go into the bassinet. She just wouldn't. Um, she'd scream as soon as we put her down. Um, even just asking them to come and just hold her while I went to the toilet, I felt incredibly bad for that. I should I should be able to do the, this thing. I should be able to take care of my daughter on my own, like every, every other mum seems to be able to. Um, so that's the kind of personality I was at the time. I just could not ask for help. And the nurses, to their credit, were very nice to me. I just wasn't in that headspace to ask them for too much support. If I went back in time, I would have asked them to hold my daughter for a couple of hours just so I could get just a couple of hours of sleep, just give her some formula. Um, but at that point in time, that wasn't, that wasn't my prerogative. Um, and then the next day we got to go home which was great. I felt like a bear in a cage in the hospital. I did not enjoy being there whatsoever. And I was back and my husband was there and he could support me. And that was fantastic. But the thing with my my toddler, my daughter, is that she was a colic baby. So she couldn't be put down because she was screaming all the time and she would cry for hours every day. Um, and even at two and a bit years old, she's very her temperament is still pretty consistent with that um so I felt like I was constantly failing all the time because I just couldn't I couldn't get my my baby to stop crying if I picked her up and I sung to her didn't matter the only thing that she enjoyed was bouncing on a ball well with us holding her (laughs) just bounce her on a ball um with us holding her while bouncing on a ball that was the only thing that soothed her and um, we never got diagnosed with reflux, but she spat up 16 million times a day and it was chunky milk. It wasn't like what my son does like yeah. maybe once a week and it's uh-huh. fresh milk. It's like chunky, yucky milk. Um, and so I I go online and I'd see people like, oh, enjoy the baby snuggles and all that kind of stuff. And all I wanted to do was get this kid off me um because I was holding her for 12 hours a day and then my husband was holding her for 12 hours a day so there wasn't that much respite and I was also feeding her every one to three hours in that within that time frame because I was so obsessed with breastfeeding because that was the one thing I could do to show that I was the mother you know that I wasn't failing her um and so we went at six weeks to a surgeon because one of the midwives in the hospital said that she had a little bit of a tongue tie so I thought yes this is it this is gonna this is gonna help we latch onto those things don't we <laughs> oh 100 <laughs> percent. and we went to the surgeon and he said no it's not she does have a, the a tiny um tongue tie but it's not enough to operate on there's no point and I, I was just sitting in that room with the doctor and I was just crying <laughs> but trying trying my best to stay strong like trying to not show him that I was crying and if I if it was me now I would be like well you don't have to breastfeed her for 24 hours a day so yes 
it probably doesn't seem like there's any point to you, but possibly it could make a slight difference, which could be really good for me. But I wasn't me two years ago, so I didn't say that. Um, I just said, oh, okay, okay, bye. Paid them 200 bucks to be told that. Yeah. Um, and we went to lactation consultants and even the midwives in the hospital was said, oh, her latch is really good. So I thought that I was sort of like a crazy person that I was struggling with this when everybody was saying that it was fine and she had her wet nappies, she was gaining weight beautifully, all this kind of stuff. So everyone's like, she's fine, everything's good. But I was in a lot of pain all the time. Um, And around eight weeks or so, the pain sort of started to subside. So, yeah, so things got a little bit better. Um, And my daughter, once her reflux and her digestive system started to relax, started to mature, I should say, um, she started sleeping a little bit better um, and she actually became a pretty good sleeper um which was good my husband and I were sleeping in shifts for a while because we needed to hold her for 24 hours a day and then over time she got more and more comfortable sleeping in the bassinet and then her cot and things were a lot better after that but I still wasn't happy um my husband had generous paternity leave and went back to work at three months which um which I want to say that we're lucky he did, but I think that that should be a bare minimum, really, mm. that um, fathers should be given generous paternity leave no matter what. Anyway, that's by the by. Um, and I was so nervous. I was so afraid to be at home with my daughter all day, the daughter that I very much wanted and loved and um, all that jazz. I was afraid of being alone with her, which was so strange to me like by that point in my life I had a PhD I'd I'd gone overseas by myself I'd left abusive partners I've moved house a bunch of time I felt like a very competent person and I didn't understand why I couldn't be at home alone with a baby because I didn't understand that being home alone with a baby is really fucking hard work (laughs) yeah um and after what we'd gone through in the hospital and everything, I, yeah, I wasn't very well, but I didn't really realise that. So I remember talking to the doctor about it. I said, I've got a really supportive husband. I get good sleep at night. We're breastfeeding now and everything's okay. Um, I have good maternity leave. Why? I'm, I don't, <laughs> I still don't enjoy being a mother. I don't understand. And I think I called Gidget. I always get it confused. I'm not sure if I call Gidget or Panda, (laughs) but one of the organisations, because that period of time is such a blur now, but it must have been Panda. Look, you wrote Panda on your submission. There we go. So I'm going to believe (laughs) you from a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. Um, And I called them and I said, I don't like being a mum. And they were like, oh, okay, you've called the right place. (laughs) So that was really nice um, to be validated. And I think most women are like this. We we try and Google everything. So I heard about them through that route, um, through Googling incessantly at 3 a.m., wondering why I wasn't very happy. Mm. Um, and I was also, I had intrusive thoughts like every 10 minutes of the day. Like I would walk to her bassinet and think, okay, she's probably dead. Like this is this is it. And I'd have intrusive thoughts. Like I'd think that and then I'd think, oh, at least now I can get some sleep. Yeah. Like that's how yeah. that's how deep within that 
Um, Because I obviously didn't want her to be dead. Like, I don't think I need to. um, You don't need to add a disclaimer to that, no. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's just, just, yeah. So I clearly wasn't very well. Um, And so I went to my doctor. Must have been, must have been around five months. So I had, I had started experiencing issues in my first trimester of being pregnant. And then within the first couple of days of being, her being born, but I didn't go and see a doctor until about five months postpartum. So that's a huge amount of time. And it's mm-hmm. a huge time in your life as well. Like that's the longest period of your life <laughs> is the newborn stage. Yeah. Um, so she diagnosed me with postpartum depression at that visit and then put me on the list to see a psychologist. And it then took another three months or something to see the psychologist. Um, I know people can't see my mouth right now, but it just like, (laughs) it dropped to the floor. Yeah. yeah. Three months. Something like that. It was two to three months, something like that. It was a long wait waiting list. So they, they said, do you want to speak to a counselor who I could have seen pretty quickly but I said, no, nah, I think I want to talk to a psychologist. I think I want to level up here um, because I'd seen counsellors in the past. So back in like my early 20s, if I'd have a, a low stint, I'd go and see a counsellor and a one-off and sort of a tune-up and then that was it. But this time I wanted to see a psychologist um, and I still see her to this day. She's awesome. So I got very lucky. So the first lady I saw was was the lady that I still see now and often it does take a few psychologists to get there so I was lucky in that respect that I didn't need to shop around too much at all and so I still to this day I talk to her once a month um when I had my son um six months ago I was talking to her every fortnight just to check in and make sure I was doing okay um during that vulnerable period of just having a baby um yeah so so things started to get a bit better from there so at around eight months postpartum um, I was seeing a psychologist and my husband and I introduced a bottle of formula a day. Um, and that was a huge weight off my shoulders. And, um, it's so funny cause I went into motherhood going, Oh, you know, if they're formula fed, that's great. If they're breastfed, that's great. But then those early moments in the hospital when I was disconnected from her really yeah. pushed me into that breastfeeding. I have to breast at all costs perspective. And so when we had that bottle of formula in the house, I cried and I thought, oh, you know, like, are we feeding her poison? Like, is this going to be really terrible for her? And I knew rationally that that wasn't the case, but emotionally that's how I felt. But as soon as we gave her that bottle of formula, I felt amazing. (laughs) But it's still what it represented, I guess. And I've actually, I actually breastfed my daughter up until two weeks ago, so I'm a big proponent of um, mixed feeding and formula feeding because having that one bottle of formula actually helped me to continue to breastfeed her to over two years old. So, And you go into motherhood thinking it's all or nothing with these things. Like you have to breastfeed or you formula feed and there's no in-between or you have to do this or you have to do that. Um, but there's actually so much grey in the middle that you can play with and that gives yeah. you options. Yeah, so a few things were sort of working out. I was seeing the psychologist. We had introduced a bottle of formula and I started what was called Play Nourish Thrive at that point, my Instagram page, which is now drlisa.researcher, where I was summarising what research has said to sort of 
hopefully take pressure off other parents as well. So sort of a throwback to that gestational diabetes to help. And I and I should I should summarize that paper one day on my I page. I hope you do. <laughs> yeah, because um, because a lot of the research says that you don't need to be a perfect parent, and that it's a and I'm an implementation scientist. So because of that, you're very much aware that yes, in a perfect randomized control trial where all the conditions are perfect and you're in a laboratory, yes, there can be a significant impact of a certain thing. Say, oh, let's use breastfeeding, for example. So this isn't what the data says, but I'm just using that as an example. Say in the laboratory where all conditions are perfect, breastfeeding might be the best. But at home with you and your baby in your ecosystem in real life, breastfeeding might not actually be the best for you. Uh, Formula feeding might be the best in your particular circumstance. Yeah, so (laughs) the data does kind of say that, (laughs) um, that breastfeeding can, can be great. But when you look at real life and how it actually, how that research can be implemented into somebody's everyday life, formula might actually be the best option for quite a lot of people. Um, so that's the kind of stuff I try to do with my page is look at the research and try and bring it back to real life. So what does this actually mean for you? Um, and you do a and- very good job of it, if I may <laughs> say. It's very validating. Thank you. Thank you. I don't, I'm not sure if I explained myself very well then, but um, if you ever go, if, you're, if the listeners ever go to my page, I think you'll understand what I'm trying to say is that there's so much pressure and there's so much conflicting advice that we have on us and then very little support for us so we're expected to do all of these things perfectly but then you're just sitting in your home and there's no one there to help you (laughs) and it's just um, complete bs if you ask me yeah so i started to do that and that gave me something for my brain to do as well um, that that was kind of related to my daughter but more related to me and Um, that started to make me feel really quite good that was like my form of self-care was reading journal articles and then summarizing them and then putting them on Instagram and I also um, started a a shop with baby products and and what have you so um, and I started to work on a website when I was eight months postpartum and that was really cool because it was learning something new and and I did that while my daughter napped. And at that point, she was starting to crawl around on the floor. And she was actually quite happy to do that. So I could be on my laptop doing stuff. Um, and that worked really well for us. And then at a year postpartum, I got pregnant again. I must have been 11 months postpartum. I'm, the math is really hard. So if I may, before we touch on the pregnancy, yep. I just want to go back. You said you reached out to your GP at five yes. months postpartum. Yes. Didn't speak to a psychologist until eight months postpartum. There's two and a bit, three months there that to me sound like hell. Like if you oh, yeah. had told me I couldn't see someone or access help for two to three months, I couldn't even go an hour at a time. So I'm I'm yeah. wondering how did you cope during that time? Because that is a substantial amount of time and I just yeah. want to know how on earth did you get through that? So we're very fortunate. My husband owns his own business. So around that time, I used to go into work with him. um, And that was around the time I was able to start working on my website and things as well. So I would, I would sit in his office with him. So I still wasn't very well, I was very unhappy, but at least I was next to my favorite person in the world. And, and I was seeing people like the people he works with are just beautiful. 
so I was able to have conversations with people. I wasn't stuck within within my house all day. Um, and I'm an introverted homebody. Yes. I, I yeah. don't get lonely very easily or very bored yeah. in my own company. And I was struggling in, inside yeah. my four walls. So that was really weird for me. And and I also signed up. I, I sort of was pushing my um, maternal health lady nurse lady to get into a mother's group. Okay. So I got into a mother's group at eight, eight months as well. Eight months was the clincher really. Um, but all the other kids, all the other babies were like six weeks old. I think the oldest was three months. So my daughter was like a teenager <laughs> compared to those kids. But luckily three of the mums were second-time mums, so it wasn't too bad. Um, and they're a beautiful bunch of ladies who we still chat on WhatsApp now. Um, yeah, so those three months were spent feeling like a, a dog shit mother that like why wasn't I enjoying myself? Why why is this so hard for me when it's so easy for everyone else? And then just trying to keep my head above water by um, going into work with my husband as much as I could. And um, I also had a girlfriend who was working on the COVID response at the time. Wow. So she her hours were all over the joint. So she had spare time during the week. So she would come once a week and bring me lunch and cook it and then clean up and hold my baby for a little bit and um and she helped me get out of the house as well so she would go to the shops with me so I didn't leave the house with my first child by myself with her just us two for seven months because I was just so afraid um so yeah um so that's how I got through that period (laughs) not very well but well enough that my head was just above water. Yeah. And I mean, what an incredible friend. Yeah, exactly. And she's thinking about having a baby in the next couple of years. So you can imagine how much support I want to give her. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because you never forget the people who looked after you. Never. Yeah. <laughs> Take a breath. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, should I go to my pregnancy with my Whatever you're comfortable new baby? with. Yes. Yeah, so my husband and I were pretty, we knew that we wanted more than one. And it probably sounds crazy to everyone that, you know, after all that, we still went back to go again. But I think mothers, I think, I think the people listening to this podcast will, will understand that compulsion. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so we were pretty keen to rip the Band-Aid off and get the babies out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I got pregnant around a year. Um, and... Yeah, and my second pregnancy was awesome. Um, I Because I was in talk therapy with my psych and I was really starting to look after myself a lot more than I had in the past and I went back to work at a year but I was a lot less invested in work than I was during my first pregnancy. I knew that I was just there for a few months and, yeah, and I took all – all of my annual leave. So I had heaps of annual leave um, because I never took leave before because you're supposed to work all the time, you know. Um, (laughs) So I had heaps of annual leave. So I took all of that and started mat leave at 29 weeks um, because I thought, you know, I don't want to be sending emails after my water's broken saying, (laughs) I think I'm in labour, so I'm not going to go to those five meetings I'd booked today. (laughs) I did the first (laughs) time. Why am I not surprised? I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, 
I guarantee there will be so many women listening who'll be like, "Yep, I did the same." Yep, hundred yep, percent. I answered 100%. emails after I gave birth. Yep. Yep. No yep. problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're a funny bunch. Um, yep. Yeah. So that pregnancy was good. So I decided this time I wanted to stay out of the hospital as much as possible. And because my first birth was positive and it was a physiological birth and I didn't have any pain medication, I thought maybe a home birth might be really good. Um, and the other thing was Delta, one of the COVID variants, was mm-hmm. ripping through everyone at that time. Yeah. So the idea of going into the hospital for appointments and things like that was not something that I really wanted to do. Yeah. So we had the biggest children's hospital in New South Wales 10 minutes down the road yeah and so everything sort of worked really well and we thought oh this might be a great option for us um and I was pretty confident with my body and what I could do thanks to my first birth so I didn't have a lot of fear around that either and so I did I went through caseload which is um one midwife for one woman Um, And that was through that public hospital that I gave birth through the first time. But this time the midwife comes out to you to do all the appointments. And then if you're still low risk by a certain time, then they bring out a birth pool and all that kind of stuff at 36 weeks ready for your birth. And sure enough, everything, everything was fine. So I didn't have gestational diabetes with my son, even though I was bigger, I wasn't eating as well. I wasn't exercising as well. Um, all this kind of stuff. So if anybody's listening who had gestational gestational diabetes, it's not your fault that you have it. Um, There's a lot of misconceptions about who gets it and who doesn't. Um, But, yeah, you're definitely not at fault. Yeah, so and I was able to have a beautiful labour at home. It took longer than my daughter's and it happened overnight. So that's the most inconvenient my son has ever been. (laughs) Yeah. And he's a pretty chill kid. Like he is. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. How dare he keep you up at night for once? <laughs> if I can say that. I know. I remember I remember looking at the time and it was like one AM or two AM and I'm like, come on. <laughs> come on. Um, but overall it was a positive birth. Um and I then got to snuggle up in my own bed after the birth, which was just great, with my husband next to me to support me the whole time. But the thing with my son is, is that he latched on and I felt zero pain. Wow. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then between feeds, he would sleep calmly in his bassinet yeah. for a couple of hours. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> I don't understand. I legitimately thought there might be something wrong with him because all I'd experienced before was a baby that cried for hours every day and, yeah, this was a completely different experience and it was incredibly validating that it wasn't that I was failing my daughter or that I was doing everything wrong. It's Sometimes it's just the baby. <laughs> and it's not their fault, obviously, but it's, you, you don't have as much control over who they are as you think you do, at least that, that I thought I did before I had kids. Um, so that was an incredibly validating experience. So if anyone's listening to this and thinking that they failed breastfeeding or whatever it is, you did not fail breastfeeding. It's not you. Um, there's so many factors that go into a successful or unsuccessful breastfeeding relationship. Um, and sometimes it's just 
is the baby's mouth big enough in my case? <laughs> and I mean, um, sleeping as well, you know, and sleeping. very different experiences between the two and there's nothing you did wrong. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that was incredibly validating. And at no point with my son have I ever thought that I'm a bad mother or anything because that thought never goes through my head because I feel very confident with him and and empowered to be able to support him. Um, So, yeah, so it's just an unbelievable experience having these two completely different babies and it's so humbling. And that's where I sort of come back to what I said before where you just, all you've got to do is just love them and look after yourself. That's really, that's, that's, that's the magic source, really. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm on my second maternity leave. So my son is six wait, six months old, uh, almost seven months, and I feel like I'm finally getting to experience a positive maternity leave, and it feels amazing. I'm like, is this what other women experience <laughs> um, when you don't have – when you're not depressed every day and yeah. hating life and – and I feel empowered to be able to do things like I can leave the house with him, no problem. And whereas it was took seven months before I left the house with my daughter and I can go for a walk and not be afraid and go to a cafe and not be afraid that he's going to scream the whole time and all this beautiful stuff. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if you're ever really cured of postpartum depression or not I haven't really thought very deeply about that yet but and it's definitely something that I I still talk to my psych regularly and um still try and stay on top of um because I definitely still have my shit days there's no doubt about that I still have days even a couple of days ago I had this overwhelming feeling of just leaving the house just I need to get out of this and that's just my brain problem solving my brain going you're in a situation that's a bit shit. What can you do to stop it? Walk out the house. And I didn't, and I'm never going to walk out the house. Um, but I still definitely have my moments, even without the postpartum depression. And that's totally normal and to be expected. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm a bad mother um, for feeling that way every so often. I, I want to make it clear that my daughter is awesome, <laughs> by the way. I know I talk, I I try to talk from my experience because yeah, she, she is beautiful and amazing and she's so stubborn and I hope her personality never changes because she's going to be a force in this world. Um, It was just a little bit challenging (laughs) for my husband and I when we first had her, that's all. Um, Whereas my, my son is sort of just a sweetheart, just an absolute chilled sweetheart of a boy. Um, So yeah, <laughs> I just wanted to point that out. Of that she, she and is beautiful. No disclaimer is needed. They're hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whether they're a chill personality or loud, it's hard work either yeah, way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so obviously in terms of the pregnancy, it's two different experiences, but also you implemented planning. So you spoke about this. You were in contact with um, the beautiful Catherine of Mother Up. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of planning, what did that look like? Yeah, so I've never actually met Catherine in person. It's mm-hmm. only ever been over um, Zoom and whatever technology we used. And she kept us um, honest in terms of um, she's got a canvas that works. Oh, I've on... heard all about this canvas. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. Incredible. Yeah. So I highly recommend anyone listening who's thinking of having another baby to have a look at her canvas um, because she's got it there free to use if you want to use it. Um, I would highly recommend doing it with her because um, she's just a wealth of information. Um, 
And even she says that she'll suck um, water out of stone, like in terms of getting the support that you need, like um, more than more than less. Um, And once she's on your side, you feel so supported. Like you you do feel like you have that force behind you. Um, And so we sat down with my husband and we worked on, you know, making sure that we're continuing to get support. Um, So so in terms of. So, for example, I had a terrible time in the hospital the first time and my husband had to go home. So Catherine suggested I talk to my psychologist about getting a note from her. So if I do end up transferring to the hospital and needing to be in the mat ward for, or if my son ends up in NICU or whatever, um, I had a letter from my psych recommending that I have a private room so my husband can stay and support me and I gave that to my midwife and she's like awesome and had that on file ready to go in case of transfer and that's awesome things that postpartum planners think of that we wouldn't necessarily think of at all exactly I would never have thought of that um I would have just if I had a hospital birth again I would have just been in the room by myself again probably um without thinking about that um she helped us organize food delivery. So when my daughter was first born, my husband and I both thought that he would have heaps of time to be cooking beautiful meals for me. <laughs> yeah, my husband said the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it became very quickly apparent within the first couple of days of being home that the time he spent in the kitchen cooking these amazing meals, I was holding a crying baby in the other room. It just wasn't working. So I ended up eating lots of snacks and um, one-handed things that weren't very nutritionally dense and all this kind of stuff, and I'm sure that that contributed to how shit I was feeling. Um, So this time we had meal delivery ready to go, even during my late pregnancy, Um, and and I've only just started cooking now (laughs) in the last month or so, and I quite enjoy cooking. Um, So things like that, um, making sure I had support systems from my family um, and setting up healthy boundaries um, around my friends and family. Um, And it was all about really putting me first, putting my needs at the top, even above my babies in some respect, because you as a mother are just as important as your baby. um, I don't know if your listeners have heard of the mother-baby dyad, which basically tells us that the health and well-being of the mother is critical to the health and well-being of the baby and those two things are interlinked. Um, so once you pop out the baby, everybody tends to forget about you, but actually they shouldn't because your health and well-being is what's going to keep that baby happy and healthy. Yeah. So that's a lot of what Catherine's work is about is protecting that mother-baby dyad. And so support for my, for my daughter as well. So obviously... I wasn't going to have any time um, to take care of her because I was busy taking care of my new baby and myself, so organising support for her Um, and all these little sort of practical things and a lot of them have escaped my mind now. But, yeah, I definitely recommend your listeners to go and check out that canvas if you're ever curious and to follow Catherine because she puts little tips up on her page. So a couple of days ago she even put the tip up about if you're somebody who struggles asking for help, possibly you could send 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks to all of your friends um, before you have the baby. So that way when you're in that postpartum period, 
you can then call them back on favours and not feel bad about that. That IOU kind of system. Yeah, and I think that that's brilliant for people who are terrible at asking for help and feel really guilty about it. You've already sort of paid that forward, so it takes that barrier away that you can't, that you, you know, you can ask them to go and get you a coffee or a sandwich or whatever and it's going to be, and it's okay, you've already paid them for that service. Um, yeah, so this second period postpartum has been worlds better, worlds better. And I just and I just wish that women could have that the first time. Yeah. That would be much more ideal. Instead we throw women into the fire and go, okay, good luck, we've all done it, you'll be right. Um which is just total bullshit if you ask me. And a lot of it's to do with, you know, our patriarchal society which sees women's work as easy and um, free free, mm-hmm. and doesn't contribute as much as, you know, the man's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I obviously held a lot of those sort of misogynistic beliefs within me that I didn't even realise, thinking that I would be fine at motherhood. It's got to be it's got to be easy. Everybody does it. I've done a PhD. Yeah. Like that's really hard work. I can yeah. be tired a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I spent the first three months of my daughter's life just angry at the world because I was like, what? how do we do this to women? Um, yeah, and so it's funny with my with my good friend, like, you don't want to scare them, <laughs> but you also want to give them realistic expectations because I didn't have any realistic expectations whatsoever. And I think that this time that's helped a lot knowing that it's it's not all good and it's not all bad. It just is and that's okay and you're allowed to have conflicting feelings. And that reminds me of the other things that I've done with this this little guy is we've we started using formula and introduced bottles and things straight away. So I've never had any problems with supply I know a lot of women do struggle with supply, but for me, I've never had any issues with supply. And so everyone's like, oh, don't introduce a bottle, don't introduce formula. And I'm like, you know what? It's going to be fine. I know I know my breasts. <laughs> I know what they can do. It's fine. And it has been. Um, but from my experience, you know, as, as mothers and women, you get told what your body can and can't do all the time. But you know your body best. You know what your body needs. Anyway, so, yeah, we introduced bottles straight away. I was doing – I was sleeping in shifts um, with my husband and getting the sleep that I needed because I'm important too, you know. My sleep shouldn't be secondary to my husband's sleep just because he goes to work. I'm working as well at home here. And longer hours too, quite frankly. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, my, my husband's fantastic. As soon as he gets home, he is, yeah, if anything, I need to pull my socks up. <laughs> I say the same thing. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. And I think that I'm so happy that my kids are going to see their dad doing doing his dad stuff because my daughter particularly, like she's not going to settle for anything less when she's older, which I'm so happy about. So, yeah, so things like that. So introducing formula, um, prioritizing my sleep. I don't really follow any schedules or anything because I don't really need to with my my son. With my daughter, I was very scheduled and that actually worked really well for her because I needed a level of control that I didn't have. So in, in a lot of ways that was really helpful. But with my son, we don't really worry about that and everything works out fine. Um so just little differences like that. I'm very, um, I don't have any guilt about putting the TV on. So if I've got two kids at home, I don't have any guilt about putting the TV on too so my daughter can watch something while I change my son's nappy or feed him or put him down for a sleep. Like 
God forbid I do those things, you know. (laughs) And you and I have spoken about this a lot, that there is so much pressure and we carry so much guilt. Yeah. But we're in survival mode. Exactly. And you've got to do what you've got to do to survive. Yeah. And if that means a bottle of formula every now and then or full-time formula or TV or whatever it is, dummy, heaven forbid, you've got to do what you've got to do. (laughs) I know. Can you imagine the worst thing you've done today is giving your kid a dummy? Like you're doing really well. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we need to hear that more as mums. You know, know. we do need to hear that more. We need to survive in order to enjoy it. Exactly. Because that's really the basis of it is I wanted to enjoy my second baby. I wanted to, like, since he's been born, I haven't read anything about milestones for 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 babies or anything I should be doing. I started, because we started solids recently, I went back to some pages that I used to follow with my daughter. And I realized after following them for, like, watching their stories again for a couple of days that I started to get a bit like, oh, is my daughter having enough of this or that? or whatever, when actually she's been thriving and is perfectly healthy for the last 18 months of me not looking at these things. So I am ha- I use the mute and unfollow button and the blocking button with abundance <laughs> um, and just feeding my, my son what feels intuitive to me. Yeah. So we do lots of pouches with my son because oh, they're yeah. freaking easy and there's nothing bad in them. They're perfect. But, yes, there's there's options and those exactly. options are okay. Exactly. Like if you look at the whole picture, like it's fine. <laughs> so that's that's it. Like everyone's different. Like you've got, you probably have some listeners who love cooking and love doing all that stuff. Go for it. Because that's the thing. We're all different. Our babies are all different. Like some people will get a lot of joy out of making beautiful meals for their mm. kids and that's absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. And then other mothers will get zero joy and it will only cause stress Mm -hmm. so you don't need to worry about that because it's perfectly beautiful options so yeah it's just looking at the whole picture and going what's actually working for me yeah like yes instagram is saying all these things but instagram aren't with you at three o'clock in the afternoon when your kid's asking for a snack or 3 a.m in the morning or 3 a.m in the morning when your baby's crying they're not Mm -hmm. there rocking the baby with you so you need to do what works for you Mm. um and yeah, that can be completely different choices to what I'm making. And that's mm. fine. Like, I, I always think like Catherine from Mother Up, like I, I had a home birth where she has an elective C-section and yeah. both of those types of births are perfect for yeah. who we are. Mm. Um, that's the best option. And I see these things as options. You don't mm. have to have a home birth unmedicated and you don't have to have a elective c-section you can have all sorts of things and you can have those things and they don't have to be polar opposites we don't have to look at them as one versus the other yep exactly exactly yeah so i like to look at the whole picture Mm. because it's really hard because i think we come into motherhood as often as professional women Mm. and we assume that there's all these boxes that you can tick Mm -hmm. um that show that you're a great mother except that every recommendation and guideline booklet that you look at will have slightly different <laughs> different ideas oh, yeah. and recommendations. So it's actually impossible to tick all the boxes. And so I think when we do something, say baby led weaning versus purees, if we do one of those things, we think that's the only way because we're all a little bit insecure about our mothering journey. <laughs> so we have to we have to make it seem like this is the way you do it. 
And as a second time mum, I'm like, oh, my son gets purees, he gets a little bit baby led weaning, he'll be fine. He can, yeah. he'll be able to chew and talk, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. And I think we've spoken about this before. It comes down to being told that nothing is ever good enough. Exactly. As mothers, and that's a cultural societal thing. We're told we're not good enough, that the choices we make aren't good enough. We have to justify our choices. We have to stand by them. And by doing so, we're subconsciously pitting ourselves against other people or other mothers and it's that's the cycle that keeps getting perpetuated yeah yeah we're forced to compete in motherhood and womanhood in general but in motherhood and that is that's not what we need in motherhood we need compassion in motherhood and we don't need comparison yeah like you said that there are only options in motherhood there's no one versus the other there are just a spectrum of options and everything on that spectrum is perfectly okay exactly exactly right um i have a question if you don't mind you talked about childhood trauma and trauma from past relationships yeah Are you happy to talk about that? Because you mentioned that that came up a lot in motherhood and that was something you had to confront. Yeah, definitely. I think becoming a mother really puts a mirror up to yourself and you're so, your capacity is so low and you're so emotionally drained that things just come out. Um, Things that you haven't thought of for years and years and years that you've, you've pushed down just come to the surface. And I guess going back to sort of the abusive relationship is that my coping mechanism when I left, so I'll give a little bit of context. So when I was 18 to 21 years old, I was in a relationship with a horrible, horrible person who was um, physically, financially and emotionally abusive to me. Um, And I left that relationship when I had the strength to and I had, you know, some money that I'd borrowed aside. It wasn't very much at all. Um, and I left and I pushed and I pushed that down. You know, I, I felt strong that I had done that, but I didn't address the underlying feelings that being in a relationship when your frontal lobe is still developing um, can do to a person. So I learnt from a young age even younger than that in in other relationships and situations that I couldn't rely on anyone else, that I needed to be completely independent because relying on other people involves strings and and could make them do horrible things to you because, you know, you deserved it because they helped you so much and all this kind of stuff. So when I became a mother holding a screaming baby, the idea of asking a nurse to hold her while I went to the toilet was excruciating to me um, because it go- went against everything that I had taught uh, that I had learnt as a young girl. So through my talk therapy with my psych, we sort of break down those experiences and uh, reflect back on them and actually address them, which is something that I hadn't done in the 10 years before. And that's been such a valuable experience um, because as a mother, you need community, you need help, you need a village, you need support. You can't do it completely alone. I mean, I'm sure there's some women out there who can um, for various reasons. I mean, I can't talk for every single experience, but in the vast majority of cases, we need other people. And so an inability to ask for help can really get in a way of thriving as a new mother. And unfortunately, the rates of domestic abuse and and sexual assault and all those fabulous things are just way too high. 
Um, yeah, sometimes domestic violence starts when somebody's pregnant and that's horrifying. And I'm so sorry if you're listening and you're one of those women. It's just you don't deserve that. Um, yeah, so so even though I have a beautiful husband now um, and beautiful support systems around me, um, I needed to learn that it was safe to ask for help and to reach out to people. And now I've learned that I... I can actually just take people on their word and it's not up to me to thank them tirelessly or or whatever. So that's been a huge turning point because I've, I've had many conversations with my psychologist where I'm like, but if I ask them for that, what if they say this or that or whatever? And she's like, well, that's up to them. They're an adult. If they don't want to disclose to you that their strings attached, that's not your problem. And that was sort of like, oh, <laughs> I don't have to hold the weight of other people's feelings. That's interesting. <laughs> and that's a big thing to learn or unlearn, I should say. Yeah, it's just I'm smiling because it's just such a revelation yeah. um, <laughs> that I'd never considered before. Um, yeah. And it's just such a it's such a weight off your shoulders. And I it wonder is. if anybody listening, <laughs> this might be a weight off your shoulders as well, I hope. <laughs> I mean, especially when you're taught from a young age that you have to make people happy in order to be safe. Correct. Yeah. And it, yeah. it stays with you for a very long time at work, at home. And then motherhood comes along and you can't necessarily make this little screaming baby happy. No matter how much you love them, how much you feed them, how much you cuddle them, how much you do everything right, tick the boxes. Exactly. Exactly. I think as women, yeah, we're through our relationships and through our experiences, we're, we're taught that we're almost playing a chess game where we've got to keep everyone happy and move the chess pieces in just the right way in order to yeah. keep everyone around us happy. And like you say, and sometimes that to keep ourselves safe, yeah. which is a huge, it's a huge thing to have to deal with, mm. um, a huge responsibility of somebody. Um, and it makes sense that we get so focused on that if if that's to keep us safe. Um, and so when we become a mother and our capacity is so low, you you have to start putting yourself first. And that can be quite confronting to yourself and quite confronting to the people who are used to the behavior that you were, you were doing before. Um, upholding healthy boundaries is a beautiful gift to give to yourself and to give other people as well. You know, I can say no to other people. Um, and that's actually giving them a kindness by doing that and yourself a kindness you equally yeah. deserve that prioritization exactly. of yourself exactly exactly and that sort of comes back to mothering a baby like you're not going to be perfect and you need to prioritize yourself and I think that the we think that we have to never let our baby cry never let them have any moment of distress or whatever it might be yeah. but then we're not never going to brush our teeth. We're never going to eat no. anything. We'll never have a shower. Yeah. That's coming back to the Good Enough Mother by um, Winnicott, which tells us that those moments of tolerable frustrations that our babies experience are actually moments where they develop and learn how to sort of have moments of self-regulation and that they're and they're in a safe environment and it's not like we're we're talking about abuse or neglect like no. we're leaving them out on the pathway while we're going to the pub no. for a few hours although that would be nice to go to the pub for a few hours but <laughs> but when it we're talking yeah. about moments where you're looking after your basic needs and yeah. that's a healthy boundary um so even with my toddler now if she wants to play and I'm still eating my food I communicate with her look darling I I would love to play with you right now but I need to finish my meal because it's important that I feel my body um she might have a tantrum she might have a meltdown that's okay that's okay 
if she has to wait five minutes so her mother finishes her meal, she's going to be fine. Um, and that yeah. in itself is something so powerful that your children will learn, okay, that's important and my mum is also important. I think that is such a powerful thing that we can teach our children. Exactly, because there's, um, there's research shows that intensive mothering ideals, so which plays into perfect mother ideology, shows increased rates of burnout, maternal gatekeeping um, and those types of sort of negative things and feelings of guilt and shame and rage. And these things are perpetuated by our culture and by social media that tell us that a mother must be 100% present at all times um, and that their baby must never experience any moments of frustration or discomfort. Um, They definitely can never, ever cry. Um, And this is terrible for mothers and what happens when a mother burns out is she becomes disconnected from her children Mm. so the the impacts of that is much worse than a little bit of a moment of my son you know whining a little bit because I'm just having a shower or brushing my teeth you know he's gonna survive that he's gonna be fine and I'm gonna pick him up and love him and meet all of his other needs directly after um because yeah because I I have experienced um childhood abuse and and stuff from people who were trusted by my family. And that's different than the time that my mum <laughs> went and had a shower and put me in a safe place. It's very, it's worlds apart. Yeah. And those things had very different impacts on me. Because um, I reflect back on my first postpartum with my daughter is that because she cried so much, my amygdala was just firing constantly. Mm. Like, stop this baby crying, stop this baby crying, stop this baby crying. So I wouldn't go to the toilet or mm. I wouldn't grab myself a snack or I wouldn't go and have a a drink of water before I went to her when really what she needed was a mother who went to the toilet, who grabbed a snack, who had some water, who had cared for her basic needs and then supported Mm. her. She would have cried for an extra couple of minutes, but she was crying anyway. And over time, that consistent putting myself last and Mm. my needs last meant that I was afraid to be left alone with her. Yeah. So her having to cry for a couple of minutes while I did those tasks, but me feeling like my basic needs were met mm. would have meant that I was okay <laughs> with being left alone with her eventually, yeah. you know. So it's a whole picture perspective. Of course, none of us want our babies to cry, but, but that's what babies do. That's how they communicate. Um but they need mothers who are what attachment theory tells us is they need mothers who are consistent and um, warm and nurturing and keep coming back to them. But if you're, if you keep putting yourself last, you're not going to keep coming back to them and you're a human being with these basic needs. So it makes sense that your brain starts to problem solve and go, okay, what's getting in the way of me getting my basic needs met? Oh, my child. Interesting. (laughs) Um, So secure attachment is built off millions of micro moments of love and care and warmth and you looking after yourself is going to facilitate that. Trying. That's all we got to do. Just try our best with what we've got. Mm. All we've got to do. We don't need to do anything fancy. We don't need to have fancy nurseries and our house doesn't need to be spotless and we don't need to never, ever yell or get angry or have emotions that are are anything but happy and joy. (laughs) Because that's unrealistic. Yeah. But our kids just need us. Um, imperf- imperfections and all, you know. Mm. So you're doing a lot better than you think you are. Yeah. And I think that that's something that us mums need to remember sometimes or even be told. Um, 
I've made it my prerogative to tell other mothers that they're doing a great job because yeah. a lot of the times we don't get that feedback. No. What we get are people are expectations and nothing we ever do is is good enough. So we've got to be our own best friend and be the best friend of our friends as well in telling them that, you know, you you are doing a lot better than you are. If you formula fed from the first day, if you co-slept, if you had them sleeping in a crib, if you had a physiological vaginal birth if you had an elective c-section all of these things you're doing so much better than you think you are and none of these things are representative of the quality of mothering that you're doing um the quality of mothering are those beautiful moments between you and your baby when you're loving them and i'm gonna cry again now um (laughs) for a different reason this time yes happy tears are those beautiful micro moments of you and your baby and that connection. Yeah, so you're doing a lot better than you think you are. And you definitely are. And that's a very different experience compared to your first. Absolutely. I thought I had to tick a lot of boxes in order to be a good mother, but those weren't what were important. What was important was my relationship with her. You're a lot kinder to yourself compared to the first time. I've been getting progressively better better I don't know if that's a word but feeling more at ease since then (laughs) happy tears (laughs) yes absolutely well thank you for taking the time to speak to us today I think everything you've said is is spot on and it's a reason why so many people follow you on Instagram is because of your insights but because of the validation you bring to motherhood as well that we don't have to be perfect and I think that that is what makes you a force to be recognized (laughs) Thank you, Beck. Same back at you. Your your page is so validating as well. And you cover so many topics about mental health, things that I've never even considered. Um, so I've learned so much from your page as well. So thank you. So now I'm a crying mess. So thank you. No, I love it because it's not me crying for <laughs> Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.